Hello everybody and welcome to the Venture Oasis. It's Tuesday, 14th of July, 2020, and I am Khaldun Tabaza, your host. And this podcast is brought to you by Imina Group, an investment company made up of company builders and venture capitalists with founders' attitude and investors' mindsets. Around 15 years ago, I met a young gentleman at the World Economic Forum at the Dead Sea who was actually interested to listen to a pitch about investing in tech companies in the Middle East. When I approached him, he did not have a business card to give to me, but later on that day, he came back and handed me a paper tiered from a notes letterhead that had his email address and phone number, and I'm glad he did. Over the years, he provided me with invaluable advice and insights on the art and science of investments and much more, and made it to the top of my list of people to call when I'm about to make a key decision or about to hit the panic button. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting from beautiful Greenwich, Connecticut on the East Coast of the United States, a friend, a seasoned global investor and one of the first investors in the tech industry in our region, Abbas, also known to many of you as Eddie Zoyeter, co-managing member and chief investment officer at Zoyeter Capital Holding. Whenever I meet with Abbas, I always run out of time. So during the hour or so that we have today, I will try to convey as much insights, inspiration, and actionable advice from him as possible, such that young and old founders and investors alike who are listening to this can reflect on this and benefit from it in their careers and life in general. Abbas, welcome to the Venture Oasis. Thank you, thank you Khaldun. So, what got you to uh, Greenwich, Connecticut? Wow, you're going to start there. Um, uh, I um, I graduated from college, and I went to college at Georgetown in Washington D.C. And I graduated in uh, 1989, and I moved to New York City uh, to work um, uh, at initially Drexel Burnham, Lambert, um, and um, and then we moved to California. And we always liked um, New York City, but uh, when we came back from California. Uh, my wife and I had our um, uh, eldest daughter, uh, Lena, and we needed a place, a bigger place uh, for uh, children. And in California, you get used to having a car and land. And so we looked in uh, Westchester County and uh, found a very nice place in uh, Rye, New York, and just kept moving north to Greenwich. Greenwich tends to be uh, close enough to the city. You can get into Manhattan within 37 to 45 minutes. Um, and far enough that you can actually have a, a family life and a quiet, quiet uh, time. And we're by the water, which you know <coughs> as you, when, when, when you, you come and visit. Absolutely. But, but you were not born and raised in the United States, correct? That is correct. I was not. I, I was born in Kuwait. Uh, both my parents, uh, I'm, I'm originally Palestinian, Palestinian-American. My parents... Uh, met in Kuwait and worked in Kuwait. And then they came to the United States to continue their education when I was uh, 10 months old. So hence I, have no, hence I have no accent. I sound like I'm from Chicago. <laughs> but I was actually born in Kuwait, uh, came, came to the United States at 10 months old, uh, where my parents went to college, completed, my dad completed his uh, doctoral degree, his master's and doctorate. My mother got her undergrad. And then we stayed here till um, I was about uh, eight years old. And then we moved back to first to Bahrain and then back to Kuwait. Wonderful. And uh, before starting your own investment company, you worked with uh, one of the famous celebrities in the investment business, George Soros. And uh, that's when I met you. So can you talk a little bit about how how you evolved your career and uh, some of the work that you've done before starting Zoyater Investment Holding. Yeah, I guess um, uh, happy to sort of. Well, let me let me start a little earlier and get you to that part. But I mean, I I grew up uh, like I said, both my um, both my parents 
are very well educated and both actually had careers in finance or in banking. So I grew up in a household that was very focused on investing uh, or politics. That was the topic at the lunch table or the din dinner table. We either talked about investing or we talked about politics. P politics was depressing. Investing seemed to be a little bit more exciting. And so I had this, this passion to invest from a young age, uh, uh, not necessarily venture capital investing, just really investing. To me, it was a lot like solving a puzzle uh, because really in investing, you need to be able to forecast the future or at least do a probability analysis of what could happen. Um, so that led me throughout my career to um, uh, multiple opportunities, uh, which was catered towards investing, either consulting, advising, or actually doing investing. And um, I got fortunate. Um, at the age of 35, that um, uh, I was able to meet George Soros and um, uh, get an opportunity to work with him at a really opportunistic time for him and for me. Um, and I, the way I sort of tell it to people, it was effectively 12 years where I effectively got an education, the best education you can get in finance, and someone paid me rather than me pay for the education. It was like someone paid me for it. Um, and it was uh, a fantastic opportunity to really um, learn and hone uh, the thematic, global macro thematic way of investing that I still follow till today, which, which George really made famous. Absolutely. What was one of the most valuable advice that, that, that you know, you've learned through those years? that you still apply today? Yeah, uh, George doesn't give advice. So one of the most valuable things I learned is don't tell people what to do, show them or do it yourself. Um, and um, I think the most uh, critical piece of advice that I learned and I would give is that um, uh, be quick to admit you're wrong and accept the consequences and take a long time to admit you're right and appreciate the rewards. Uh, investing is a process and it's a marathon. And uh, one could um, uh, end up in hubris where they think they're actually better than they really are, or it can get more very depressed and think they're worse than they very are. So, so I try to stay even keel, um, admit when I'm wrong, you will be wrong. So you might as well just admit it, accept the consequences. It allows you to move on. And then when you're right, be, pa be patient to ensure that you continue to be right. So constantly re-underwrite your investment thesis. And Abbas, you've managed, you know, while almost spending all of your life in the United States, you've managed to build uh, a fabulous network of friends over here in, in our part of the world and you serve on the board of one of the oldest and largest financial institutes in this part of the world, the Arab Bank. And you've managed to sort of, you know, build a balanced career and sort of, you know, a balanced life between the United States and, and this part of the world. While you've had the opportunity to choose, you know, you could have built a fabulous career in the United States and, you know, much larger market, much bigger opportunities, probably more developed ecosystem, or you could have chosen, you know, to, to do more of your business in, in, in this part of the world and, you know, probably enjoy, you know, um, maybe a, a bit of a nicer weather in certain places, maybe better opportunities, but you've, you've managed to build a very interesting balance between your career and your friends and your legacy in the United States and this part of the world. So how do you think about that? Because a lot of the questions that many of the you know, young, bright students from this part of the world who get into Ivy League or top universities in the United States, you know, they always try to make the decision whether they should come back or whether they should work in New York City, or maybe if their parents are lucky, you know, 
they can have them in London. I want to give you and the readers an honest answer. I, I did not really think it through. It wasn't intentional. So I came, uh, I came to the U.S. for college. Um, I, I, I did something people these days don't do. I got a job before I graduated. Uh, actually, I find um, it's kind of odd. I find people in the Middle East a lot of times come to college and then they um, they graduate and then they think about a job. I actually had multiple offers before I graduated and I stayed uh, in the United States and I worked and I, I really didn't necessarily think intentionally I wanted to stay here or go there. Uh, a couple things came in that actually dictated that decision. Uh, the first is when, when I graduated and worked, I was working in New York City, I was doing very well. Um, but Kuwait got invaded by Iraq. And so even if I wanted that at that time to go back, let's say to Kuwait where my family was, it, it was no longer in the cards. Uh, that wasn't a decision, that was a decision Saddam made. I didn't make that decision. Um, a second thing that uh, sort of affected that and impacted that is that um, I got married at a very young age and my wife and I uh, had a child and so um, I wanted to work where I could maximize my opportunity set as much as possible. And then, you know, my parents came to the United States at that time uh, because they were in Kuwait. Actually, they were stuck in Kuwait. And they came here. We had investments here. So so I would say in the early stage, it wasn't intentional. I really, I just, my, my main focus was I got an education. I really like finance. What better place than New York City to go and do it? And I was fortunate that people thought I was worthy of uh, a job, and then sort of, you know, events took over. I guess then uh, maybe about, say, eight to ten years later, when we had our third daughter, and we were, my wife and I were thinking, do we want our children to be raised in the United States or in the Middle East? I, I made a trip back to the Middle East, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't function there. Um, it was uh, the, the, the bureaucracy and the level of... Um, red tape, so to speak, at that time. This is a while ago now. I think it's gotten better. Uh, it was just completely alien and frustrating to someone who had worked for 10 years in the United States, particularly in New York, and, uh, you know, worked very hard, but didn't have to deal with a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of uh, nepotism, you know, etc. cetera. Um, so, 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 I came back. I actually told my wife, I said, you know what, we'll visit. <laughs> That's nice. We'll come for vacation. We'll bring the kids. But it's just very difficult once you have a, a mindset of certain ways, style of working. Later on, you know, because of the way of the global, uh, you know, uh, because of the way we think globally, I don't differentiate the world between East, West, North, Europe. I go look for the best opportunity for our capital. Where's our capital going to generate the best return and is most welcome and will be treated fairly with rule of law and respect because we're generally um, not the control investor. And so we invested globally. Uh, the Middle East became very interesting because of catalysts. And then, quite frankly, it does help that uh, uh, actually I give a lot of credit to my father and mother. They had a stellar reputation, uh, not just in Palestine, but in uh, all of the Middle East. And so it was easy to say my name, and people would open up the door. And really, that's my parents. I had nothing to do with that. They, they, they laid the groundwork. Uh, but I took that very seriously, and I used that to get to know uh, good families and good people in the Middle East and um, good entrepreneurs and work with them. But the last thing I would say is, um, and you're like this too, and I find most good investors... If you're intellectually curious, um, you'll ask a lot of questions, you'll get to know a lot of people, and you'll learn things. And so I try to uh, be uh, as intellectually curious as possible. I'm not shy. My wife will tell you that. Um, and that allowed me to be able to get to meet some very fascinating people and um, learn and then collaborate over time. So... Sorry, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a well-established no, no. roadmap. That's sort of the way it worked out. No, no, this is, this is fabulous. A uh, couple of years ago, I think, you know, you spoke to 
uh, you know, the Arab Students Club at Harvard uh, and, 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 and gave some advice, you know, uh, about, you know, how to plan and think about their career. So, uh, you know, may I ask you to, uh, you know, uh, talk through that again uh, for, for a wider student, say, you know, um, uh, students in universities who are interested in pursuing a career, who are fascinated about venture capital, who are fascinated about, about entrepreneurship, what would be the best advice that you can give to them so that they can, you know, make the best out of their work and their careers? So, Dun, you're, you're, you're asking very, you did your homework, you're asking difficult questions. Um, the first, that Harvard conversation was supposed to be private. I didn't realize that people were tweeting it. Um, uh, and then second, I'm not sure I remember everything I said, but, but here, here's what I think I've said. Try to think of your career in, as a form of concentric circles. Try to find the place where you're very passionate, you enjoy, and what you're good at. And, and find that match there. So an example I gave them is they said, I love American uh, basketball. I'm a great, huge fan. Georgetown's a great team, basketball, high uh, college team. And then the New York Knicks were pretty good when I was growing up there. So I love basketball. I'd love to be a basketball player. But I'm, I'm, not, six, I'm not even six feet tall. So I'm not going to be a basketball player. So, so really what, I, what you try to do is see how do I own a basketball team? Or, you know, try to find those concentric circles. So that would be point one. Find the place where you're passionate and you have some skill. You'll tend to do better. Um, the second thing I tell them is uh, be an independent thinker. The most important lesson I learned from my family and I teach my kids is it doesn't matter what other people think. It matters what you think. Um, and don't make your decision based on opinion. Make it based on facts. So learn how to be a critical thinker. Uh, debate. No, no one gives you a to-do list uh, when you're an adult. You have to figure it out every day. So you might as well start early and become a critical thinker. Critical thinking is such an important element, and it's the one area where we won't be able to create a machine to do. You know, the human human ingenuity and human judgment is a function of critical thinking. I think the third thing I said is. Um, um, don't be afraid to have high conviction. You know, um, uh, too many people over-diversify or are too risk-averse in life. Reality is, every time you wake up in the morning, you're taking a risk. And, you know, we live in a COVID environment where we're all taking a risk every time we go outside, etc. So, so learn how to take risk properly. I'm not saying be imprudent, but just realize life is about risk and it's not, you don't live fully if you're simply trying to avoid to lose. So learn how to take a chance and 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 win. I, I think that's primarily what I told them. I didn't really say go into this sector or that sector or this field. Um, it was more focus on uh, lessons that you don't get taught in school, but you need to learn in life. You know, you need to be a critical thinker. You need to know how to manage risk and make good judgment calls. And you need to find what you're passionate and good, not just what you're passionate about or just what you're good at, but that confluence between the two. Wonderful, wonderful. So Abbas, you've, you've started listening to and getting interested in, in venture capital and technology in this part of the world at least 10 years ago, probably, probably 12 years ago. And uh, today you're probably, you know, one of the most, sought after uh, advisors and co-investors in, in this space. So uh, my question to you, what did you say, what did you see 10, 12 years ago that get you interested in this space? And does that still hold today? And how do you see this industry today? What makes it interesting, more interesting or or less inter interesting to you? Yeah, so uh, look, I'm, a, I'm an avid reader and I'm a historian. And I think one thing I learned um, maybe 15 or uh, many years ago is um, uh, adoption rates tend to persist. Trends, human, human life is full of cycles and trends. And so you try to look at a trend and you try to see how persistent is the, the trend. 
And, uh, you know, in the, having the advantage of working first at Soros, but then also in the United States, we saw a lot of the adoption rates and the trends that were starting in, in innovation coming out of the dot-com bust, boom-bust cycle. Um, you saw a lot of that. And then when you went and visited some of these companies or you talked to some of these people, you realized a lot of those leaders were brown people. They actually were from our countries. You know, I, people, I know now everyone knows it, but back then most people didn't know that Steve Jobs, originally a Syrian father, Okay. And you would go and you would visit a company called Facebook or Qualcomm back then or Cisco with the C. And you realize it was full of actually really, really talented young people, many of which came from the Middle East, India, Africa, China. And so that got me excited to the idea and saying, wow, if all these really bright, smart people here are making fortunes and creating businesses, I'm sure some of that's going to go back. You know, so that was part one of the thesis, which is, you know, follow the innovation and the innovators uh, to where the opportunity. And then the second part is when you look at the uh, Manasa region, let's call it that, or MENA, you have a very uh, large addressable market. Uh, it's high, high in consumption. Um, there's very high rates of um, uh, cell phone usage, even back then. Okay. Um, they are, uh, Arabs by definition are nomadic, transitory. So they're constantly going from one place to another. So they're used to exposure and the ability to adapt. So adaptability is very important with technology. You know, you can't really innovate and develop and implement technology if your customer base is not adaptable. Um, that was it. And then I met people like you, you know, I would go visit and I'd meet really talented people. I mean... You were young back then. You, t you mentioned earlier on that I was young. You were young, too. You know, and you'd have some really uh, good, serious conversation with some really talented, bright, young people. And you realize they had all the skills of an entrepreneur, similar to what I would meet in China, in India, in the United States. And so that, that got me sort of saying, well, okay, maybe there's something to do here in the region. Um, so that's how I got started into it. Wonderful. Um, and today, you know, you've, in addition to investing in multiple funds, uh, some in the MENA region, you know, as well as internationally who've invested in the MENA region, you've also initiated, you know, a fintech initiative uh, at the Arab Bank where you serve as, as a member of, uh, of the board of directors. So, um, Today, when you, uh, when you talk to other investors or when other investors, institutional investors, sovereign wealth funds ask you about advice on how to devise a strategy to invest, to have exposure to this growing industry in the MENA region, technology and internet investments, what do you advise them? How, how, should, how should an institutional investor think about this industry so that he, uh, they do not miss on it? Um, look, I, I, I think you have to start with uh, a framework before you even get into investing. You have to start with a framework and um, set risk-adjusted goals and returns. So I always start with someone and I say, what is it that you're really trying to achieve? You know, are you, are you trying to make 30% per annum for the next 20 years? Or are you just really trying to make 5% or do you want to, or is your goal really not even for profit? Your goal is you want to better the world, you make it a better place. So you, you have to start with the right framework. If you don't start with the right, an honest framework. A lot of people will tell you they want to be rich. They want A lot of entrepreneurs will tell me, Eddie, I want to be rich. I want to make a big billion dollars. And then you find out they really don't actually. They want to do is still be very happy for me, ten million dollars, and all their friends told them how great they were. Uh, so you you really need to start with a framework. What is it that you're really trying to achieve? Um, and then you need to uh, look at what's realistic versus what's uh, probabilistic. So um, as much as you talk about what I do in the Middle East, which is all true, the reality is it's less than five percent of my portfolio today. And, and that's 
by design. Um, I, I feel there's a, a great opportunity in the Middle East, but there's huge challenges too. And, and so you can't, if you're trying to maximize return for a family or for a group of family, and you can invest anywhere in the world, you're not going to put 100% of your money in the Middle East. It's just you won't do it. I mean, uh, I had an entrepreneur just as this COVID situation came out. Terrific entrepreneur. I love him dearly. Great guy. Pivoted. He's, uh, his company's based in Dubai. Um, he needed more capital to deal with COVID. I'm, in addition to being an investor, I'm also a mentor to him. And he came to me and he said, uh, everyone else is giving me more capital. I need you to also put in more capital. And I said, no. And he said, why? I said, so-and-so, you did everything right. You pivoted. You got a good plan. You're cutting your costs. You're really thinking about it correctly. You're going to be successful. But the reality is I can get 40% just owning Microsoft. Okay. So you, you, you need to have a risk-adjusted return framework. That's what I tell people. Um, there are too many people that say, I'm a private equity guy, so I have to do private equity. Or I'm a venture capital. I have to do that. I don't have that constraint. I go where I feel like there's the best opportunity. People that have that constraint then have to live within that constraint. Um, I prefer not to live within that constraint. Uh, finally, then I say, look, um, you, you, particularly when you invest in a stock or a company, you almost have to think about it a little bit like watching, reading a book or watching a movie. Um, you've got to realize that there's a beginning a middle and an end and you need no one's going to tell you when to get out of the company or get into the company you have to learn how to read the story and the narrative so there's there are people that are very good in the early stage they know how to how a book's going to begin and if it's going to be a good book there's some people that are really good in the middle stage they know how the the book is going to build up to the denouement the the uh, the catalyst and there's some people that are very good at the end stage and they know if the book is entitled to a sequel or not. So um, I try to focus on where I think I'm good at and then find people that are good in the other areas and then work through uh, specialists. And that's why you're right. I, I don't do everything myself. First, the world's too big. And I don't want to have, I can't afford 3,000 employees and I don't want 3,000 employees. Um, uh, but I do want to. I, I do want to invest in the world, and so you have to pick and choose where you're good at, and then find people that are really good, and work with them. Absolutely. So Abbas, um, you've been you've been involved in in some initiatives and funds that promoted the development of the technology industry in Palestine, and you know you've been a friend and close to many organizations in the United States who are willing to lend a hand to help promote and build the development and the technology industry in Palestine and to an extent in Jordan and maybe today in Iraq and Egypt and in other parts of the world. You've also been part of, you know, organizations like the Arab Bankers Association of North America and other organizations. And, you know, there's, there's always, you know, and uh, it, it uh, basically comes and goes, you know, it's a trend of interest of international organizations, you know, to promote peace and prosperity and create jobs and, you know, transfer technology and uh, use technology and venture capital as as a means to inspire hope and uh, basically you know uh, sort of uh, push and give people uh, more reason you know to develop the local economies especially in some of the areas that are hard hit such as the west bank and palestine uh, what has been your experience in this area? Did it work? Is there more that can be done to make it work? How can organizations and successful entrepreneurs and founders and investors in the Middle East work with their counterparties and such organizations in the United States to make the best out of it? And can you think about this in a pure commercial 
manner or do you need to have other developmental aspects added to it yeah i th- i think i think uh wow that's 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 a lot let me uh, let me uh, a word i i like to use and my dad liked it when i told it to him was called compartmentalize so i'm going to try to compartmentalize the question into several answers first i fundamentally believe that um uh, people do what's in their best interest okay i also fundamentally believe that if you teach someone how to fish they're better off than if you give them a fish okay so so if i start with those two principles which is part of my belief system and then i add on top of it i am an arab and i am an american that's who i am i i told the uh, hasam khuri once i said we're much you know you're you're a bit of a mutt too you know we're half half you know i'm half half i'm all palestinian all arab in my dna if you go to 23 and me but i grew up and i work here and i live here and and the society and i'm accepted here so i try to use those three sort of principles and say how how can i do what i like to do i always uh, people gave a chance on me they took a chance on a palestinian arab name with two names abbas and eddie you know a muslim father a christian mother and they took a chance on me and they didn't really they all that was interesting but they really cared is it, it can he do the work and my success is built off of the fact that people took a risk a chance on me over my career so i've tried to do that out of self interest not because i want someone to give me an award or write you know a nice letter or stuff like that it's just really out of my self interest it makes me feel good when i help uh someone do well and i help them do well by helping them get a job or or fulfill a dream or or feel like they can achieve more from that so that that's very selfish kind of doing that's our best that's what i like to do and that's the way i did it now in doing that in the middle east what you find is that the more you mix for profit and non for profit the worse the outcome and and by the way and this is global it's not just in the middle east i i think there's too much you know do well or make money and people try to do everything and they end up doing nothing well and so what i try to do is i try to separate compartmentalize the two i said is this a venture uh that i could make money in and i treat it as a for profit venture if it happens to be that we make money and we employ people and we improve the livelihood and the well-being of the people in that community fantastic okay if we don't do well we're not going to help anyone anyway so start with the focus of uh building a good business i mean you and i have had this conversation several times um uh, uh, ultimately i may give the money away for charity or or a foundation everyone can do what they want with their capital but if you really want to build a society you want to develop individuals you want to create this multiplier effect you got to run proper organizations you got to run proper uh, companies you got to make money you can't just have eyeballs you know you got to you know employ people um and um and so 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 I I try to compartmentalize the three things. What I find is if you focus on the first part which is finding good people, creating a good corporate governance, find underwriting a business and helping them run a good business, that allows you to do the other things. You can do the other things without having to run a good business, you know. So uh Dawan which is uh, a fantastic organization that I've been involved on really uh existed 35 years was started by uh founders that were Palestinian entrepreneurs in the diaspora really to help develop human beings Palestinian human beings you know I chair the investment committee um for that and and my my sole objective there is to work with the manager and the board the our committee to generate the best return of capital people have asked me why didn't you invest in palestine i said that's not our job our job is to ensure that the pension and the endowment is around forever so we're going to go where the best opportunity is now if we make profits then it's up to taiwan to find the best programs in palestine to do that so that's sort of the way i do it 
Uh, Arab Bank is another very good example of that. Fantastic organization, been around uh, almost 80 years, uh, started by a shoe salesman in Baltimore, you know, and a, a Palestinian, grew up near Jerusalem, came to the United States, sold shoes, went back. Um, today, Arab Bank has the bank, and then it has what's called the Shoman Foundation. And the Shoman Foundation does fantastic uh, work across the Middle East, by the way, for culture, development of education, uh, debates, uh, negotiations. Very separate and distinct from the bank, which is really focused on generating good risk-adjusted returns for its shareholders and its stakeholders and its depositors. Um, I think that's the best way to do it. Um, my, my old boss did the same thing. You know, we had Soros Fund Management, which was what I would call, we made the money, and then OSF, Open Society, where they spend the money. And we kept, we kept the two separate. Even though people were very focused on both, the functions, the governance, the, the way we did it were very separate from each one. Uh, so this takes me to, to another topic, because you and your brothers and your family have been involved in, in producing movies, you've been, sponsoring, <laughs> you've been sponsoring musical activities, surely that does not make money, right? Uh, does it send a message? Is it, is it a mission thing? Is it because you enjoy it? Talk to me about that and why you think it's important in elevating yeah. societies. Yeah, well, the, 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 the movie thing, uh, that's, that's my youngest brother is a professional actor. That's his passion. And he found a place where he was good, and that was his passion. And it happened to be acting. And Waleed is very good at it. Um, I don't, I'm not a movie guy. I like movies. I like to go watch them. But I've never been anyone uh, that says, you know, I'm going to make a, my money or a business in movies. And in fact, if you look at the movie industry, it's actually a little bit like playing roulette. You know, because people's tastes, movies are all about people's tastes, which are changed in there. In, in the situation where we did, where uh, Ahmed, my middle brother, and I uh, collaborated and partnered with Walid and Hani al-Bashad, here we had a director who already was globally well-recognized and talented in Hani al-Bashad. He had uh, he'd already been nominated for a prior film. Second, we had Walid, who was an established actor. And then third, um, we told them, look, we don't, we want to make money, but what is more important, everything has to be done in Palestine. It has to be underwritten by Palestinians, paid Palestinians through a Palestinian bank. And we wanted to, we wanted to create employment. This was an objective that what we said is let's show ourselves and our partners that, uh, Palestinians can, can tell their own stories. That was really the objective. That's why I just did. Uh, you, you can tell Walid, I rejected doing it four times before <laughs> I said yes. And it was really on that premise. The premise was, let's create a multiplier effect. Let's, let's be the first risk takers. Although we weren't the first. There are other people that have done it in Palestine. But we said, okay, let's do it. Ahmed and I and Walid and my father, we then went to all of our Palestinian friends. And we said, we're going to underwrite it whether or not you come or not. But we think you should come. And uh, most of them agreed. It's incredible when you tell people you're putting your own money to work and you believe in something and you give it to them very clear. Actually, I think we talked to 30 people and I think 20 said yes. And everyone put a little bit of money. These are mainly Palestinian investors, families and friends. And we did a movie in Palestine and it got nominated for an Oscar. We did not make any money. It was not profitable. Um, but... But here's an interesting statistic, because I asked Walid to keep track of it for me. I think it's now been six years since we did the movie. Every single person, we, we employed over 90 people. We created a little bit of a multiplier effect in the Palestinian economy. Every single one of those has gone on to get another job wow. in the film industry. Wow. Wow. This is... So that's, 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 that's the satisfaction there, even though... It was not a profitable proposition uh, for us. Um, on the music side, that's that's really entertainment. I'm um, uh, I'm very passionate about music, particular uh, loud music. And um, 
and very similar to entrepreneurs in tech or there, if I find someone who's really talented, I'm going to want to make sure that they succeed, try to help them succeed. Absolutely. So, so Abbas, you chair the investment committee of probably, you know, the first and one of the very few corporate venture capital, uh, you know, uh, businesses or initiatives of a large financial institutions, which is the Arab Bank, which operates in an industry that's being disrupted and digitized, which is the banking and finance industry. Um, how, how has that experience been? And do you think corporate venture capital is the best way for such organizations to help disrupt themselves as their industries are being disrupted by others? Yeah, so first, just a, a couple of technicalities. First, I don't chair it. Technically, Randa Sade, who okay. is the deputy CEO of the bank, is the chairman of the investment committee for Arab Bank Ventures and Arab Bank Accelerator. I am one of the member. I happen to be in the minority. I am the one male, and there are two fantastic, uh, highly talented female investment committee members. And I think we're probably unique in the Middle East where the majority, we're three members, and the majority are uh, females, Renda Sade and Lena Ghanem, uh, both independently terrific and very talented people. I happen to have the most experience in investing uh, because, you know, Renda runs a big bank. She's really running uh, most of the banks. And uh, and Lena just is early in her career with Hikma Ventures. So I have more years on her, but very talented. Um, let me step back and go why we did it to give you the merits of a CVC versus not. Fundamentally, so I sit on the board of Arab Bank, the, the mothership, and, um, and and I invested in banks my whole careers, and I advised banks my whole career. So I, I, seen, I know banking, and I knew good banks and bad. And post-crisis, it became very clear to me that uh, banking was going to be transformed forever. Not this crisis, the 08, the 09 crisis. It became... Uh, it went from being a high ROIC business, high return on invested capital business with leverage to a low ROIC business because of regulations, you know, the Volcker rule used to leverage. And so the only way a bank was going to survive going forward is if it really enhanced its technology footprint and was able to offer its customers. Because a bank at the end of the day, you know, look, the Phoenicians, where the Lebanese invented banking 5,000 years ago, it never, it hasn't changed. Banking is a commodity. At the end of the day, you, you, you try to intermediate people, savers, with users of capital. That's what banking is. So the only way you can be any better than anyone else is either your cost of funds are lower. It's like any commodity business. And, and, and here, the raw material is cost of funds. You need to lower your cost of funds. You need to lower the transaction costs. And you need to service your customer better. And so it was very easy for me, again, being here, spending my career, really investing, trying to forecast the future to say the future was all about fintech. And and fast forward to today, as of yesterday, PayPal, which is really a fintech company, okay, its market cap is greater than Wells Fargo and Citibank combined. Okay, so the thesis, which we discussed and delab uh, deliberated quite intensively with the board and with management, with Nerma, uh, our CEO, and, um, and Randa Sadeh, and the management was, how is Arab Bank going to stay relevant going forward? You know, how are we going to compete with the visas, the MasterCards, and other uh, uh, entrepreneurs, other banks in the region that are very competitive and are facing the same existential risk? And so that led us to really say, we need to turn the ROI that we spend on technology into a positive ROI. Every bank has a technology department, and they spend whatever they spend on that, uh, on the technology budget. Most of it is not positive ROI, or you can't really quantify how it's improving, lowering your cost of funds, improving your customer service, and delivering um, uh, a service that customers want. So the idea was, let's set aside a pool of capital. Let's make it part of, rather than have it just for IT, 
let's part of our budget and say, let's go and find the best technologies possible, whether they're in the region or out there, and bring it to the bank and try to strategically enhance what we do at the bank, enhance the customer service. We have a lot of, uh, you know, Khaldun, our bank, I used to, was my dad's bank. It's my bank. I'm not sure it's going to be my children's bank unless my children can find it deliver, uh, delivery. So what we've done, actually, what the Air Bank has done is developed a really terrific online service, you know, an elite program. And we said, well, let's build on that and let's continue to enhance it. So that's the idea of the fintech. Now, to the point is, is, is uh, uh, a CVC an efficient business model? I would say no. Okay, it's not because you end up with that situation. Do I invest in the best thing possible or do I invest in the best thing possible that also has strategic value? And you, you ultimately get into this uh, a bit of a debate. Is the best thing for now? It is. And if you look at some of the other firms, whether it's Silicon Valley Bank or even the, you know, the Googles, uh, PayPal's of the world, et cetera, today, um, they, they all have a venture inside the CBC arm, but they ultimately um, also invest in other separate CBCs and they expand it. But, but, but initially to change the culture, you need to have a group of people that are very focused on not day to day on what the future could be, make those investments and proceed. And that's really what my job is on the IC is to sort of help these young people that we've hired start to think about how can this strategically enhance the bank um, uh, over the years. Yeah, this is wonderful, Abbas. So Abbas, if I, you know, try to recall some of the, you know, key headlines that, uh, you know, that we've talked about today, we've talked about, you know, how, 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 how important is education and how your education really helped you get a great opportunity and, you know, how much you spend as an avid reader and a historian until today, and then how important it is to, you know, work hard and pursue your opportunity. And when you think about, you know, opportunities, if you, if you invest in, in profitable, sound business models and businesses, then you will have a chance, you know, to basically do well and also do good to the community that is, that is around you. And, uh, we've talked about, you know, uh, how, how lucky we would be if we would find uh, a business that we understand and that is a good business, but that also intersects with some of our passions, you know, that that would be the ideal situation. And then, you know, we talked a bit also about, you know, how, how one can, you know, basically enjoy and do well and maybe, you know, maybe sometimes do a little bit of business in, you know, in, in stuff like, you know, movies and art and culture and, and music. Is there, did I get that right? Is there anything key that, you know, that, uh, that you'd like to stress on or, or, or talk about as, you know, um, within the context of what we discussed in the last hour? Uh, there's one thing I'd like to stress on and then two forecasts for you and your readers and your followers to consider. Uh, the one thing that I would stress is the importance of admitting you're wrong. Uh, he who thinks he they know everything learns nothing. And it's not shameful. Unfortunately, in the East, as opposed to the West, we shame people for making mistakes. And it's almost like a sentence. In the West people go bankrupt, they make mistakes all the time. And that is considered part of learning. So in addition to everything you said, one of the lessons I learned is be honest with yourself. Don't be afraid to admit a mistake. Make it correct it, move on. The two things I would forecast going forward, Khaldun, the first is um, I'm betting big on brown women. And what I mean by that is for the last 35 years, the white male entrepreneur 
has been on third base. Scott Galloway is a professor at NYU. He writes very well. He's an entrepreneur and he's uh, he teaches at NYU a marketing class. And he talks about uh, being born on third base. So for the last 50 years, if you were born a white male, you had an advantage. Therefore, if you were not a white male, people discounted you. Okay. I'm betting on brown women for the next 30 years. There are exceptionally talented people that are not white male, that are entrepreneurs, that are developing businesses, and a lot of them happen to be women. And so I would tell your readers and those that are investors, that's a bet you should take. Um, they're going to be hungry, they're going to work very hard, and God, they're very talented. Uh, the second thing that I would say is, uh, if you're doing what everyone else is doing, you're generally too late. Um, and in the Middle East, I think we have too many cookie cutter businesses that worked well in whatever market it's going to work well here. And what I expect, because I think your industry, it's really your industry, not mine. I'm, I'm a visitor to it. You know, I'm a public market guy more than a private, but I'm beginning to see the entrepreneurs in your industry actually, um, be creative, invent their own businesses, businesses that fit to the culture. And I think those are going to be the more successful businesses. You know, um, uh, I, I listened a bit to your podcast with Sagan. You know, Sagan didn't go build the same thing that was built in the U.S. and in Europe. Honestly, sellanycar.com is, uh, only could have been built that way in Dubai. And I think those are the more resilient businesses in your region. So uh, I am today looking and when I look at the region, I'm saying, Who's coming up with something that caters to that market? Isn't just another cookie cutter, you know, oh, they did it over here. Let's do it over there type. So, th so those are my two, um, uh, my two sort of pieces of uh, advice for whatever it's worth. Wonderful. Abbas, as always, you know, we've run out of time. I thank you so much for everything that you've said and done for the industry and uh, hopefully we'll make this an annual ritual so you know in in a year or so we'll connect again and we'll talk more about uh, brown women and we'll talk more about doing things that are out of the ordinary in this part of the world thank you so much abbas thank you Khaldun. take care take care bye-bye bye-bye